Our gospel reading today is from the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 22, verses 7 through 38. Please stand if you're able and, and inclined. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this meal with you, um, this Passover with you, before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, returned back, strengthen your brothers. But Simon replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without a purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now, if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag, and if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. 
And I will tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciple said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That is enough, he replied. The Gospel of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Matt Sickle, and I'm an elder here. Um, and I'm just excited to preach today. Uh, <laughs> today's, uh, today's scripture uh, is one of four gospel accounts of the Last Supper, uh, and it was selected uh, by Pastor Andrew as part of our ongoing series on the book of Luke. Um, although uh, today I saw fit to bring Paul into the conversation as well. Um, <clears throat> I don't know what Andrew had planned to share with us, and I hope that someday we get to hear the sermon that he was preparing, uh, because it had an interesting title, and I don't know where he was going to go with it. Um, I volunteered to preach this week, in particular, because I approach the Lord's table uh, with kind of a mix of wonder, but also caution, uh, and I have had a sense that I don't understand it as deeply as I would like. Preparing a sermon uh, has the benefit of uh, forcing me into intentional contact with the scripture that we're going to be considering, and it gives me a deadline, and I am deadline motivated professionally and personally, uh, and so that's all very helpful. And I've wanted to understand communion better for a while. Uh, and so I came to today's reading with uh, some knowledge of the traditions um, and theological disagreements about communion, uh, but I also had a lot of questions. Uh, those, they were questions like, what exactly did Jesus ask his followers to do when he shared the first communion with them? What's essential and what's just 2,000 years worth of tradition? Um, what does communion mean and what did Jesus want us to understand when he shared the bread and the cup? And who is welcome at the table? It might not be possible to answer some of those questions completely, certainly not by me, uh, so if at the end of our time together this morning you feel like one of your questions about communion has been answered, I encourage you to go and dig deeper um, because we're just not going to have the time to get to the bottom of the subject today. Still, with the help of a few essays uh, and sermons by N.T. Wright and uh, Tim Keller, uh, I, I think I got a pretty good grasp of the basics, um, but it was really a sermon by Francis Chan uh, that kind of cracked open the emotional uh, weight of, of what was happening at the Last Supper, uh, and I really appreciated that. To understand communion, I think, uh, we need to consider its context, uh, both on the small scale, uh, the story of the Last Supper, uh, but also on, uh, in the context of the much larger arc of God's story uh, about what he was doing with his people that reaches back through Egypt, Babylon, goes straight through the table, and into our future. Crucially, uh, within all of these various contexts, I'd like to call our attention to two commands uh, that are given to Jesus' followers. Uh, one comes from Jesus, and the other comes from Paul. The first is to remember, and the second is to reflect. So let's start with the Last Supper first. This meal, as its name suggests, was the final one that Jesus ate with his disciples uh, before his crucifixion. His crucifixion, And it wasn't just any meal, it was Passover. 
Uh, as with many holiday meals, there was a lot going on. Uh, the term Eucharist translates to Thanksgiving, so you kind of get the idea. Uh, what happened first? What happened second? What even happened uh, is all a little bit jumbled, honestly. Uh, each of the Gospels records a story of the meal, but not quite in the same way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke mention the bread and the cup. John mentions Jesus washing the disciples' feet, but he doesn't really focus on communion, or at least not in the context of the Last Supper. And when exactly did Judas leave again? Was that before or after the meal? The Gospel writers either can't quite agree, or they just don't prioritize telling the story in chronological order. Perhaps the chaos that was going on both inside the room uh, and outside in the city of Jerusalem had something to do with the variety of ways that the people who were there remembered it. Things were moving quickly at this point in Jesus's story. He had already entered Jerusalem in a really conspicuous way, receiving the cheers of the crowd, uh, the waving of palms. Jesus had already entered the temple, turned over the tables of the money changers. He challenged and defied the Pharisees. He was not deferential. Uh, and now the religious leaders were searching for Jesus. In the Passover holiday crowds, they were watching for an opportunity to arrest him because they expected him to come to Jerusalem. And Jesus does intend to celebrate the Passover with his disciples in Jerusalem, despite the danger. He wants this badly. In fact, he's so intent on having this one last holiday meal with his disciples that he has a secret plan to make it possible. As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water uh, will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room that I may prepare or that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? and he will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. This is a secret meeting with an unusual sign. A man is carrying the water, as opposed to a woman, first century. Um, look for him. And they left and found things just as Jesus told them, so they prepared this at Passover. And so, as the meal begins, Jesus tells them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. In the King James Version and several other translations, uh, it says, with desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you. He really meant it. And at this point, the big feasts are over for Jesus. He has provided wine for a wedding party. He has fed the thousands who have come to hear his teaching. He has feasted with the sinners and the tax collectors, but this is not one of those sorts of meals. The Last Supper was an intimate, holiday meal shared with close friends at a secret location. And so Jesus' disciples prepare the room and they recline at the table and Jesus begins to serve the Passover meal. The feast of the unleavened bread was a time to remember liberation. It was a time to remember that God had rescued them and given them freedom from slavery in Egypt. And the feast included several traditional components that helped to tell that story. Uh, and so, it, in that way, the meal was both food and memorial with a well-defined protocol. Uh, and then Jesus changes it up. The unleavened bread was there. The same sort of bread that the Israelites were commanded to make quickly so that they could escape from Egypt when God gave the signal. 
But when Jesus shared it with them, instead of talking about Moses and liberation, he starts explaining that the bread he is sharing is his body. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That's consistent about the way Jesus spoke about himself in the book of John. Uh, Chapter 6, he goes on at length about being the bread of life uh, and about his followers needing to eat his body and drink his blood, but that isn't in the context of the Lord's Supper there. Uh, Likewise, after supper, he takes the cup and he shares it with them, and he says just the most incredibly um, meaning-filled and symbolism-packed sentence I think he he could have managed. Uh, He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And Matthew extends that a bit to record him saying, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So much is going on in this one sentence. First, in a meal that commemorates the Passover, when the blood of the lamb was a sign that saved Israel's sons from death, we have no mention of a lamb. Instead, we have Jesus offering his blood as a source of atonement. The references to the Old Testament scriptures uh, are even deeper here, though, and more complex, because in this single sentence, Jesus is referencing also the salvation, uh, both the salvation of God's people during the plagues in Egypt, uh, but also the words of the prophet Jeremiah. Coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. When Jesus gives his disciples the wine-filled cup, he names his own blood as the symbol of that new covenant that brings God into deeper intimacy with his people and redeems them from their sins. All of that hope and meaning and power is packed into just the simplest combination of food and drink that could even be called a meal, the bread and the cup. Not so simple. If you stop to think of it though, there is actually a third essential component uh, to the meal. It's it's a simple command, and it's one that the disciples pretty much immediately fail to follow. (sighs) Do this in remembrance of me. If we share wine and bread, or grape juice, and stop there, we have not shared a communion meal. That's just a very light dinner. (sighs) We join the Lord at his table in this space where he was so eager to be with his followers when we remember him, when we remember the God who rescues and sacrifices, who gives us light, life, and who writes his law on our hearts. And so this, this is the first 
instruction that I'll, I'll help us focus on, to eat, drink, and remember. Remember me. Do this in remembrance of me. And then the closeness of that moment was pretty much immediately shattered. By Luke's account, even as Jesus is offering the cup, he is announcing that he will be, be betrayed by someone in the room. The disciples' conversation devolves instantly into a petty argument about who is the greatest, and then Jesus shifts from leading the gathering to reacting. Uh, if you've been parents, you really know, or if you led a Sunday school class, I think this is how it was going. He was like losing control of the room a little bit, it, it seems to me. Uh, he's correcting them. He's explaining that in his kingdom, the, the greatest are actually the servants. And then his attention shifts to the near future, and he predicts that his disciple Peter uh, will deny that he even knows Jesus, and he warns them the danger is coming, and the gathering ends somewhat abruptly, with the disciples maybe missing the point that Jesus is trying to make about being ready for persecution. And then there's two swords on the table, and Jesus just ends the meal. Enough, he says, enough. <laughs> um, there's a lot of diversity in the ways that Christians practice the communion ritual. I have polled a few friends, including some people in the room uh, recently, just to ask about the traditions that they grew up in or, or have experienced. How did your church do it? What's unique? Um, you know, anything special? How often did they do it? That sort of thing. Uh, and I have spoken with people in the Reformed, Catholic, mainline Mennonite, and non-denominational churches. Uh, and with great respect for all of the traditions that practice communion, or if you prefer the Eucharist or the Lord's table, I'm not sure that any of them really capture the feeling of the original occasion. That's probably for the best. If, when we gathered for communion, we tried to reenact the Last Supper, we would need to wait for Passover, stage several arguments, betrayals, uh, someone would have to sneak away during the arguments, and then we'd wash one another's feet, and then there'd be a couple of swords. Um, Challenging for the Mennonites in the room in particular. Uh, despite all that happened before, during, and after the meal, the early church did attempt to honest Jesus' request uh, and incorporated the sharing of a regular communal meal into their earliest practices. And that's pretty well documented in the New Testament. Um, Luke later records that they are practicing this meal uh, in part two of his big research project that we now divide into the books of Luke and Acts. Uh, in Acts 2.42, he says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Unfortunately, some of the disarray of that first supper seems to have found its way into the practice of the early churches, too. In his first letter to the Corinthian church, St. Paul calls them out on the way that they are keeping the communion tradition. The first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 11, verses 17 to 22 and 27 to 32. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? 
What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and ill, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. Mixed in with Paul's disappointment here, Paul gives the Corinthians a pretty unusual warning and an instruction. The warning is that physical weakness, illness, and death have entered, that's what falling asleep means, it's a euphemism, uh, death have entered the Corinthian church because their disgraceful behavior, because of their disgraceful behavior surrounding the Lord's table. Your meetings do more harm than good, he says. You are divided. Some of you are feasting and getting drunk while others are going hungry. Uh, and in Paul's letter to the Romans, the Corinthians, the Ephesians, the Philippians, and the Colossians, Paul encourages the early churches to seek unity. It's a common theme of his, uh, but we see here that the Corinthian church seems to be dividing into hierarchies based on wealth. Paul says to stop that. What could be more unlike Jesus washing the feet of his disciples than, uh, than the Corinthian church uh, having some members feasting while leaving the poor ones behind? And Paul tells the Corinthians that their behavior is unworthy of the Lord's table. Whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. This is a serious problem. And so Paul gives them an instruction to correct their malpractice. 1 Corinthians 11:28 says, Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. Consider, he says, if you were approaching the table in a manner that is worthy of the memory of Jesus' last meal. He doesn't tell them to come if they're without sin. That wouldn't have made any sense. Uh, the... the we come to the table to remember and act out our receiving Jesus' body and blood to cleanse us from sin. Now, Paul says to approach the table in a way that is worthy, because if you are not respecting the memory of what this meal means, then it would be better for you and for the church if you just didn't come to the table this time. Paul is a little bit vague here, though. Uh, he doesn't define the Corinthians' selfishness and hierarchies as the only way to be unworthy to come to the table, and he does not attempt to list all of the potential ways that one might become unworthy to approach it. The Bible, unfortunately, does not include an official communion instruction manual and rule book, first edition, AD 36. Uh, instead, Paul places the primary responsibility for discerning who should come to the table and who should abstain on the individual. Everyone ought to examine themselves, he says. This leaves church leaders with an uncomfortable predicament. 
Paul directs the individual towards self-examination, but the seriousness of the offense that he has described of coming to the table unworthily is such that elders and priests and pastors over the years have sought to protect their flocks uh, by defining the boundaries of the table a little bit more clearly than Paul really did. Children or people newer to the faith, <clears throat> for instance, might not really be ready for this sort of self-reflection. Out of love and reverence for this tradition, that Jesus gave us to carry out, sometimes leaders follow along with Paul and say, not this time, this is not the way. So must one be baptized or over a certain age uh, or have completed a confirmation class to approach the table? Paul doesn't say so. But these limits exist in various traditions as a sort of protection for the church and its members. This is a particular challenge for our own congregation, which attempts to balance the various approaches of many traditions. And it has to be said that there's plenty of room for abuse here too. The vagueness about what constitutes unworthy behavior has left a lot of people permanently barred from the table for reasons that might actually be more cultural or political than spiritual. Believers and leaders should be ready to consider and then reconsider those sorts of decisions with a lot of prayer. While I won't advocate for any particular threshold of worthiness or readiness to partake in communion at the moment, uh, I will point us back to the original meal, the Last Supper, as we consider whether or not we are ready to break bread together. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus shared just a few moments in a secret room with his closest followers, and it was a moment of great intention and intimacy. There's a lot more to say about communion, of course. Some of it is sacred, some of it is mundane. Jesus' followers have had 2,000 years to produce beautiful works of art, to remember the Last Supper, and to debate things like uh, how to celebrate the meal, and whether or not we use gluten-free bread, and wine or juice, and do we use those little frustrating packages? <laughs> Sorry, I, I tipped my cards a little bit there. Um, you know, all those conversations are worth having, uh, but for today, as we prepare ourselves to break the bread together, uh, I'll just leave you with the pair of instructions that were given uh, by St. Paul and from Jesus. The first is to examine ourselves before we eat the bread and drink from the cup. And the last, Jesus says, is to do this in remembrance of him. As you approach the table, remember the God who rescues, Remember the God who sacrifices. Remember the God who gives us life. Remember the God who knows us and who writes his law on our hearts. Amen.